Major Jess Dawson is an academy professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Her research interests focus on nationalism, white supremacy and extremism, religion and what binds people together, guns and the role of the American civil religion as well as the digital disruption of technology on aspects of society. She also serves as the director for the Excel Scholars Program and as the Information Operations Division Chief for the Army Cyber Institute. Our conversation covers information operations, the weaponization of social media, and what we can do about it. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Thanks again for joining us again for another uh, episode of the Raven Report. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have two very interesting people on today that I'm pretty. I've been uh, looking forward to this for a long time, uh, but I'm also uh, really bad at, at introductions. So uh, I'll get y'all to introduce yourselves, or else I will completely butcher it as I've done about a dozen times now. So uh, Colonel DeGroote, if you want to introduce yourself, let us know uh, who you are. All right. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be on today. So my name is Casey DeGroof. I am a Lieutenant Colonel in the Washington National Guard. I've been in the US military, started active duty army. It's in 1997, enlisted first and, and then went over to the commission side. But uh, more interestingly, a few years back, I commissioned or, or got my additional identifier as an information operations um, officer. And uh, that has definitely led me to some great experiences. Right now, I'm with the 56th Theater Information Operations Group. We're one of the uh, um, premier units that are out there in the larger um, U.S. Army to be able to conduct information operations. And we historically support the special operations community with supplying I.O. directors and teams. All right. Well, Major Dawson, if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having the, the conversation today. This will be great. So I am um, also former enlisted. So I enlisted in 95 um, in the Signal Corps and commissioned um, in 2007. I joked that it was the years that they took anybody with a pulse in some college because it was the surge years. Mm -hmm. um, and I commissioned also into the Signal Corps. Um, I'm currently at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. Um, where I am the Information Warfare Division Chief, and we have been researching the, the weaponization of, of social media and um, really looking at, at how social media and the algorithms are um, amplifying and driving uh, dissent and, and dis discord um, in, in, across the country and around the globe. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so uh, we were uh, just uh, talking before you got on about how uh, information operations has a, a identity crisis, and then one of the terms that we tried to stay away from is information warfare, and then you're like, you're the information warfare IO lead. So, so like, like, can you speak to that and like, kind of like flesh that yeah. out? Yeah, so yeah. the reason we stick with information warfare is because whenever we deal with people outside of the military, everybody knows what that means. Um, the Army is transitioning to information advantage as a doctrinal term, information warfare is a piece of that. But again, we keep IW because we're at a college and we are, you know, constantly interacting with other, you know, civilian entities. And that's just, it's easier to explain, like people just instinctively know what IW means. So we get beat up for it because we're not, you know, doctrinally correct, but we're not a doctrinally correct entity. So that's right, why we right. stick with information warfare. Okay. So I guess to kind of, kind of paint the picture or kind of build the, the, 
the build our castle as, as we go. Um, you're at West Point at um, Sadian, the, like, what, like the Information Warfare. So I'm part of the Army Cyber Institute. We are the mm -hmm. Army's uh, think tank for um, all things cyber. Um, and I'm the Information Warfare Research Team Lead. Okay, so what is that? What do y'all do there? Like, what, like, you're obviously you're researching, but what are you researching? What's your like process like? Like, what's what's the so what there? Yeah. So, the the overall ACI mission is to prevent strategic surprise in the cyber domain. So, we have we have several teams that are looking at, at different kind of topic areas. We have a law and policy team, a core team that's looking at core cyber issues, um, and then the decision science team. Um, and so our big kind of think tank goals is to be looking over the horizon and um, prevent strategic surprise. On the IW team specifically, we've been um, really, really focused on, on narrative weaponization. So what is going on that's in the narrative space, particularly around military narratives that's driving people apart um, and how the military has been used, particularly by our adversaries in the domestic space but also how social media and the algorithms and all of the commercial data collection that's out there is really being used against us as individuals. Oh, yeah. And I know Colonel Roof kind of wants to, to get it at, at that, but can you frame that? Like, um, if we're going to like have a conversation about, about information warfare and, and social media and how our adversaries use it, can you just kind of like frame the problem set and then we kind of just build on that? Well, I mean, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, right, is the old saying. And so on the internet right now, like no one knows if you're, you know, a Russian, you know, operator pretending to be, you know, Catherine down in, in New Jersey, right? Like that's part of the problem. And we've seen this in, in multiple um, multiple scenarios where, where the Russians have gotten into our social media space, pretended to be us, and just done what they've always done, which is drive wedges between us, you know, between, you know, neighbors further and further. So they they have direct access into our our social fabric because of these social media companies there's no barrier to entry there right so how do we go about like fixing that without jeopardizing the first amendment and without jeopardizing like the, the right to just do business in, a, in like a free enterprise so i'm gonna go ahead and just go out on a limb and say i'm not like there is no such thing as a free market Our we have always regulated markets we have always reigned in monopoly powers um, and, and capitalism, unregulated capitalism does not exist. So when people, you know, tout that out there, it's, it's usually a red herring. Um, these companies need to be regulated. They are too big to regulate themselves and the consequences that they are having globally. And this is my opinion, my personal opinion. This does not reflect anything with the <laughs> right, DOD, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, they are, they are simply too big. And, um, if you read Frances Haugen's testimony, um, at, she's the Facebook whistleblower. You know, she talks about the version of Facebook, for example, that Americans have is the best version of Facebook in the world. The rest of the world does not have that content moderation, does not have the cleaned up version that, that we have, right? Um, and, and that's a real problem. I mean, there is a reason why it has been linked, you know, this platform has been linked to genocide in Myanmar. Um, that it has been, I mean, again, her testimony says that they have been conducting experiments on Instagram on children. No one consented to that. No one really realistically consented to that. There was no meaningful consent for that. For, for that. And if parents had known that this platform was going to be conducting experiments on their children, they'd be having a different conversation. Um, so I think these platforms need to be, be regulated. The algorithms need to be regulated, right? The algorithms are the key piece to this. Um, they are publishing decisions. They are, they are editorial publishing decisions made at scale um, using, you know, math. Um, that right. means they are not just, you know, they, they're not, and I, I'm not a lawyer, so obviously lawyers, lawyers will tear me up over this, but these algorithms are publishing decisions at scale. Ergo, they are not just posting 
um, people's content for them to be, you know, to be available because they are amplifying it, because they are choosing what gets amplified through these algorithms, there's a problem there and they need to be held responsible for what their platforms amplify. Right. Okay. So um, for those that don't really understand, can you get, like, cause we have a lot of listeners that are, um, that are stuck in like the early 1980s and they're just like, I think we just get rid of all of it and kind of go back to the way it was. So can you kind of like articulate how the algorithms work and then how that, how they go about amplifying things? That's a great question because nobody can actually answer that to include the oh, platforms okay. that have built them. Um, that's part of the problem. They will tell you they don't understand what they've built. So across these different, you know, different sectors, right? So we see recidivism with PredPol and predictive policing. We see recidivism with the Compass program. Insurance companies are using this to determine how much care you get and whether or not you get kicked out of, you know, the 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 Medicare facility, not the but the the patient care, right? There's been lots of articles about all of these different algorithms, you know, being used to help people make decisions and it's having disastrous consequences on individuals. So no one can actually tell you how they work because they're processing too much data. And that's a problem, right? They're being deployed and having major consequences for people's lives. How do you argue back against the decision, right? Um, there's a really great example. Um, Wired has done some, some really good reporting in this space. Wired, the markup, um, there's ProPublica. There's just, there's a ton of folks doing really, really great and important work in this space. They have an article about um, this woman that was, um, you know, she had a prescription, a legitimate prescription for um, an opioid because she had polycystic ovarian syndrome. She goes in to pick up her refill one day and finds out not only is her refill not getting refilled, but she's been kicked off of her insurance. Well, why? What happened here? Because whoever had built the algorithm looking for doctor shopping had decided that she was doctor shopping because she had two prescriptions for opioids. Well, the other prescription that she had was for her dog. And there was no box to check in the, in the program for dog. Um, and so it looked like she was doctor shopping, right? So now this woman is living in constant pain because she's been kicked off of her insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so these algorithms are the problem, right? These, 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 these problems that we're seeing in society have existed prior to algorithms. So social media is not causing this. I want to be very clear, but it is certainly amplifying it. And the algorithms are designed to amplify this because it keeps eyeballs on screens and it keeps, um, you know, that means the companies can keep selling ads. Right. I know you had written a, a paper about that. I don't know if it's published or not. It sent it to me. I really enjoyed it. That it's like all marked up on my uh, on my desk. Uh, but yeah. So uh, so you're you're saying that like the, the step through this is just to simply start regulating you know the the algorithms. What what regulations would actually uh, kind of get us to where we need to be? I mean, I think these algorithms, before they can be deployed across society, have to be investigated by uninterested third parties. So the data has to be made available. Um, the algorithmic code has to be made available to be investigated, and they have to be checked for harm um, by disinterested third parties. And just like medications have to go through an FDA approval process, um, you know, algorithms should have to go through something similar if it's going to have, you know, serious impacts on people's lives. And, you know, the thing people will always say, oh, well, China's going to win the AI race because, you know, they're not going to regulate it out of existence. Ask the Uyghurs how they feel about that. Right. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not really that far uh, removed. You'd think that, like, you know, Boeing builds an airplane and it has to go through a, a certification process with the FAA because there's people's lives are going to be on the line. Like, why should this really be any different? It's just another product. So, yeah. Go ahead. No, oh, All right. Uh, yeah, but I'll uh, stop talking. Let, uh, you jump in there, Colonel Gr the Groove. Oh, I, well, I was just going to say, you know, the 
the China Lincoln is very good, right? Because we we also need that expectation in a in a honest broker across the nations, right? Because we do very good at regulating ourselves eventually. Um, <laughs> and, and we usually start with government, right? And so we feel those effects. And as you pointed out earlier, we limited on, hey, we don't want to necessarily mess with the market. So we're, we're not rolling these out and, and not restricting it. Um, but the, the same way applies. It's absolutely salient, um, as the doctor pointed out, is Facebook and other countries, just how weaponized that is because there is no double check, right? So we need a standards very, very simply, you know, there are national institutes and there are worldwide institutes that implement standards. And it's important that we actually get that on a global platform. Right. Is there any like a like movement to try to do that? Or is this like, is, is regulating them in that way uh, kind of like a, a fringe idea now that does to anybody? I mean, I think the, the EU is is on the right track in terms of, of, you know, protecting people's privacy and pushing back on all of the data collection that is part of what makes the algorithm engine run. Um, but as far as I know, there really isn't a global governing body that ca has enforcement authorities here. Um, so, you know, what the EU is doing is having ramifications around the world, but what the US is not doing in this space also has ramifications around the world. Right. They're just like, there's allowing it to continue to be a problem. So, okay. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, where, where do we, we, you like, you really kind of like knocked it out the park really fast. So, <laughs> all right. So I guess like you talked about the, the, uh, the genocide in Myanmar. So as a kind of like a type case, like what, what happened there? What did that look like? Uh, and like, how did social media like become, you know, the, the root of all evil? Well, I mean, it's it. The, there's really good reporting on that, and I didn't read up on it before we came on on here to talk about it. So the specifics of it aren't necessarily, um, you know, fresh in mind. But essentially, the platform didn't recognize what was happening. They only had, again, this is according to I think Francis Haugen's testimony, one speaker, uh, one Burmese speaker on, on on the company payroll anywhere in the world. So, you know, people that were watching this scenario, were watching the, the, the rhetoric escalate, watching the violence escalate, were trying to get someone's attention at the company, and the company just wasn't listening, right? Um, and so it was allowed to escalate. Like, this is a new technology, and every time we see a new technology impact society, we end up in situations like this, right? So this is new. Um, society will eventually adapt, but the question is, is how many people have to be hurt and killed before we adapt? Right, right, and try to make it... Uh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, um, when, so whenever you're talking about like information warfare, from your perspective, you're looking at it on a strategic level, right? Correct. All right. So, um, how trying to make it relevant to our listeners? How does information warfare? How does information operations impact the the operational and the and the tactical level? I mean, you know, it, it's it's really hard to have this conversation and not get into, you know, political stuff. So we're going to do our best to try. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the Russians and the Chinese both want to demonstrate that democracy is untenable, that we are that it is not a, a viable form of governance. Right. Like that is what is at stake in the current information environment is is can democracy, this grand experiment that we the people can self-govern, that, that we do not need kings and lords and, and rulers, that we the people can govern ourselves. 
um, they want to make it that 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 is not so. So that the the Russian strongman and you know the 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 Chinese hegemony of, of whatever it is that that, that they're doing um, wins, right? So the goal they they both go about it in very different ways. Like Russia just likes to cause chaos wherever they are, and and, and that's much easier to do than China, which 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 is what they're trying to do, which is control the narrative and make sure that China always looks good. The the the, the PRC. Um, so their goals are very different, their tactics are very different, but at the end of the day, if we cannot agree on a, on a shared set of common facts and, you know, figure out how to come to the table and solve hard problems, which is what democracy and politics are supposed to do, then we aren't able to govern, and that impacts everything, um, like that impacts literally everything. So the more that our adversaries are able to inject that, that division into the, our social fabric directly, um, the, 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 the greater the risk. Right. So, um, I want to kind of highlight that those two differences there, because I've, I've been reading about this pretty extensively over the past like six months or so. And I've kind of picked up on that, that the Russians just want chaos. So if you read like the, the kind of like the, the, I feel like the, like the foundational work for it in terms of books, at least the ones that I found was like, like war really kind of like, like flesh that out pretty well that like, they just like, you know, they'll get on both sides of the argument and just try to inflame it as much as they possibly can. Um, how does China actually you know, go about accomplishing their end goal? And what is their end goal, really? So. I mean, China wants to be the world hegemony where we are now, right? They want their currency, they want their values, they want their social, you know, social structure to, to, to be the thing that dominates, right? Um, and they go about that. So they're catching up, right? They, they've really been, you know, not so great at the, at, the, at the forefront like Russia has, but they've been watching and they've been learning. Um, and they are really, really good at um, burying things, um, making things just kind of disappear from the media market. Um, if you look at, you know, the way that they were, um, you know, really influencing Hollywood for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. When's the last time you saw a movie about, uh, you know, um, anything with China or, or the PRC as negative, right? right? Like, I actually can't think of one recently. The most recent one I can think of is like, Brandon Lee's rapid fire from like 1993, right? right? Um, like it's, it's a, that's how long ago, right? So they've been very good at influencing, you know, the, 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 the global media environment, right? And I think we also need to be very, very clear that like there needs to be a distinction between the Chinese people and the PRC, right? right. Like there's, there's, a, there's a couple billion, Chi you know, Chinese, ethnically Chinese people in the world, right? They are not the PRC. Right. So, you know, this idea that we can, you know, you know, enjoy films and, and things that are cross-cultural should not be, you know, a bad thing. Right. right. But when we look at the, the PRC's long-term strategic goals, right, it reduces us seeing seeing what they're doing in 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 the economic space and, and the cultural space and all of that. So they're very, very different than the Russians um, and how they're going about the um, you know, their 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 long-term strategy. Right. So, like, I, I remember, uh, have you ever seen the movie Hero with Jet Li? I don't think so. I guess you have the Colonel of the Groove? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I love it. My wife hates it. It's, like, a constant joke. Uh, I'm like, she's like, what do you want to watch? I'm like, Hero, and then she, like, is like, no. There's a couple of movies that are like that, uh, but that's one of them. One of the reasons, like, I really came to like it is uh, if you watch the American version, there's a point where they're in a writing school and, and like, there's this little old man who's like, I'm the great wizard that's going to teach you how to write. And uh, the incoming army is shooting a bunch of arrows into it. And people are just like dying. There's people are, oh, like, falling off left and right as they're, they're getting hit. And the American version, you know, which is it's dubbed over, he says that, like, no, we're going to stay here because of the power of the, the written word is, is stronger. 
But then when you go watch the Chinese version with American like English subtitles, it's very different. He says like the power of our culture is is stronger. And I like uh, when you you start reading like Graham Allison and stuff, that also that starts to come out. That all of a sudden that like that's really like the 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 coin of the realm for the for the Chinese, or at least it seems to be to me. And you can you know dissuade me either either way. That like really their culture is kind of what they're most concerned about, not necessarily anything else. And so they're they're trying to promote a certain image of of what Chinese culture is. Like, can you speak to that at all? Well, I mean, again, go look at the Uyghurs, right? Like they, they have a very Han Chinese centric view of culture, right? And anyone that does not, you know, agree with that, like they're they're going through and they're not allowing, I think, uh, Mongolian kids to learn their language, right? The birth rate in in the Uyghur population has plummeted, right? They're targeting Uyghurs, you know, internationally now, trying to bring, make sure that the, the the folks that have made made it out get brought back and silenced. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're they're doing everything they can. So their culture and part of that is no dissent. When is the last time you've heard about a protest from Hong Kong since Hong Kong fell back underneath the PRC, right? right? So like, okay, there's something to be said for social stability. But that also means no ability to argue, no ability to, you know, one of the five fundamental freedoms in our First Amendment is the right to redress our government. Right. Nothing, nothing there. Yeah. Um, I just recently learned about uh, the, the Fulan Gong and like the, the whole dynamic that, that's going on around that, which I thought was like really, really interesting. And also really interesting that I've never heard of it before, but I've seen all the Xinyan uh, like posters all over the place. Um, yeah, but the Epic Times, I mean, you got to like this, this is one of those ones where the enemy of my enemy and all of that, like, that's also a cult that we need to be very careful of. And it's pushing a lot of disinformation into our ecosystem too, right? Like I've gotten um, Epic Times mailed to my house. So they've gotten an influx of cash from somewhere, right? And they want nothing more than for the PRC to get overthrown. And it's like, we need to not get dragged into a war that we don't need to have, we don't need to take on. So we got to be careful there. (laughs) Yeah, like, so how, how do you go about doing that? Because like, like you look at like China, that's a like, China is not. Like, if I remember right, the word China actually means just like we're all together. It's like one country or whatever. And it's actually these massive like chunks of like you know uh, down trace subcultures that are all mixed into one, and you have one that's like basically ruling over all all of them, and they all have different interests, and they're all like you know it gets very very complicated very fast. So how do we navigate that? appropriately especially at your level um without getting us drawn dragged into something like that i would say it's not our problem um (laughs) like let china deal with china's problems honestly like as much as i'm pointing out like what's happening to the uyghurs right and that's bad and there should be an international stance on that um whatever china's internal problems are like that's not for us to necessarily deal with we've got our own stuff we we do need to worry about our own stuff right now right Uh, that makes sense makes sense okay so um so uh, shifting gears a little bit, you said you're you're prior enlisted, and like now you're you're teaching at West Point. And I've, I've read read your bio, so I know that like you you showed up as an E one, just like what am I doing here? And then you you managed to kind of get to that point. You kind of tell our story and tell your story because it, I feel like it would be like really inspirational for, to some of the some of our lower enlisted that say, hey, look, this is what the Army can do for you. Where you can get where you can go. I mean, my high school yearbook, I, I, I said I, I wanted to get an education and get out of Maine, right? Um, and I love going back home, so it's not a ding on Maine at all. Um, but I wanted to get an education. And, you know, as soon as I got to Germany, my first team chief said, go to college. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go take some classes. Well, this looks interesting. Let me do that. Um, and so I just kind of kept taking classes. And then, you know, when back in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, they did the Go Army Ed program where you could re-enlist and they'd give you a free laptop to go to college online. So I did that. 
Um, and then, you know, Iraq uh, kicked off and my husband and I decided we would try to stick around, you know, to make it to 20. Um, and I would go to college, I would try to go to um, officer candidate school, because at least if we couldn't make it to 20, I would have the degree and, um, you know, the, the, the management of the officer side of the house. So I, I applied to OCS. Um, and um, yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. I got, so I got, um, the way that West Point selects is they, they go to HRC and they, they look for people that have degrees for different fields and they, you know, invite you to apply. And um, one of the people that I had served with when I was still enlisted um, was the, the deputy at the Behavioral Sciences Leadership Department. And she's like, oh, you should apply to the Eisenhower program. And I was like, oh, what's that? Um, and it was the program to be a TAC, right? So they have tactical officers here that are sort of like company commanders. And um, so I did. And then they asked me if I wanted to go to school for sociology. And I said, sure. Um, and they said, where? And I, and they, and, and, or I said, where? And they said, well, wherever you want. So I applied to all the top programs on the East Coast because I didn't really know any better. And um, they all said no, except for one. Um, I got my one yes from Duke and I will always be incredibly grateful to Duke for giving me that opportunity and not firing me because I'm relatively certain I failed stats my first year. Um, but I, I, I've always kind of enjoyed reading and learning. Um, I'll read a cereal box if there's nothing there, like I just I enjoy it. Um, and I've, you know, I, I joined the army to get, you know, to get an education and the army has tons of opportunities for that. So just keep, keep trying and, and keep going for it. Um, I, I think it's, you know, you, you do have to tread cautiously because there's for-profit colleges in the ed center. So stay away from those because I have a whole lesson on that in my social inequality class. Those don't, those don't help you, um, in the long run. So community college is your best bet. That's where I started off. Um, shout out to central Texas college at Fort Hood. Um, uh you know, but, you know, education certifications, right, those are, those are the pathways to, um, you know, to, to, to moving up in life. I don't think that's the way necessarily that it should be, but that's the way that it is, and you should absolutely take advantage of the Army's educational opportunities, because there's a ton of them. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, uh, so, like, uh, I, I noticed that you're, you're sitting in front of a bunch of books. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably, like, your personal library, yeah. Oh, okay. Nice collection. Like I recognize some of the titles. I got... Super nerd. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, man, like, which, which question do I want to ask first? Like, um, what are some of your the the, the most pivotal books in your life? Like, uh, we had uh, Stan McChrystal on and, and asked this question. He got some like really interesting uh, uh, kind of tidbits for him. And there's there's books I can point out like Old Man in the Sea, uh, uh, The Practice of the Pres Presence by Brother Lawrence, uh, Like War was a, was a big kind of like eye opener for me. I mean, our previous, uh, or my previous battalion commander, he was like uh, Robert Leonard's uh, uh, Maneuver Warfare was, was really pivotal to him. Everybody seems to have these books that really, people that really read a lot, they, book, these books change them, that they become like these rudders in their life where they just, it kind of turns them. So I'd be really curious, like which ones kind of steered you? Um. Gosh, that's like asking to pick your favorite kid. Um, that's that's a terrible question. Um, <laughs> no, but there's 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 a couple, right? So whenever I I commission um, a, one of my students, I give them a copy of Martha Raddatz's The Long Road Home. So I was in First Cav when um, Black Sunday happened, and I ended up serving with um, you know two five uh, the the commander down the road um, when he was uh, Gray Wolf six. Um, and that book really lays out the importance of. Your family readiness group back home of making sure that the paperwork is right because they had a you know they were in blackout for something like 10 days and they couldn't you know come up on the net because they couldn't find one of the family members to do the notification properly 
um, it gets into the importance of, of communications and maintenance and just doing the basics right, which is what General Valesky always, always taught us. Um, so I give my cadets, you know, when I commission them that book and, you know, tell them to train their, to train their troops hard, right? Because, you know, there's no, there's, you know, always train hard, right? Because you're not going to be able to save everyone, right? And you need to at least know that you did everything you could to make sure that people were prepared. Um, Chris Wiley's book, um, sorry, I'm going to cuss because it's literally the title of it. But yeah, right. I, I was looking at it. <laughs> um, that is just, it's an absolutely fantastic book. Unfortunately, he's a whistleblower for Cambridge Analytica, so it is a little bit partisan. But if you look at the capabilities that they're describing, um, it should terrify everyone. Um, it really is just absolutely eye-opening of the potential for what these platforms can do. Um, do I think we're all going to be subject to mind control? No, but if you control the menu for people, you control the choices, right? right. Um, so it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous, the power that all of this data collection is, is having on, um, on, on our lives across the board. Um, I really, really like um, Phil Gorski's American Covenant. I stumbled across that at, um, at Eastern's our, uh, Sociological Society a couple of years ago, well, probably five or six years ago now. And he really breaks down the divide between the secular left you know, the radical secular left and the, the religious right. And, and he basically points out that there's, there's, a, there's a gap in the middle, right? We used to have this vibrant civic republicanism that's gone now and, and everybody kind of has to pick these, these two poles. Um, and I just, I think it's just an absolutely fantastic tracing of these two threads in American life. Um, and it really explains the, the zeitgeist of, of what we're dealing with right now in a lot of ways. Um, and then last I would say would probably be um, William, uh, James William Gibson's Warrior Dreams. Um, it's from 1994. It's about the post-Vietnam um, generation and the rise of this paramilitary culture, what he calls new warrior culture. You can read it and it reads like it's today, like it was written today. Um, it's absolutely fantastic in tracing the impact of Vietnam, not just on, you know, on the military, but on society writ large and what that war did to America. Um, and I would argue, and, and I think he might agree that we've never really reckoned with that. And that led us straight into, you know, the, the quagmires of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and where we are today. So those are kind of the, the big ones that really, um, you know, over the last 20 years have really kind of shaped my life, I think. Yeah. So like, uh, tell me more about the, the warrior dreams. Like, like what was his conclusion that like, what, what did he say Vietnam did that we, we haven't recovered from? I mean, it, essentially, it shattered the myth of American goodness, right? Like we 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 um, we were confronted with the, the 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 horror of war in our living rooms every night. Um, it really wasn't seen as a just cause. Um, what were we doing, right? We 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 killed a lot of people. We still didn't win, right? There's a quote that kind of came out of out of that era, right? Where um, you know an American general says, you know, we 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 never lost a tactical engagement, and the Vietnamese general says, yes, and that's irrelevant. Um, right. So it's it's it really shattered. It shattered the American conception of goodness that we were we were somehow, you know, specially chosen that we were the good guys. Um, and what were we doing there? And our government lied to us to get us there and they lied to us to keep us there. Um, it 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 really fundamentally impacted us at the societal level, but then it also impacted the Vietnam generation, who was the most patriotic generation. That's the thing that people forget about the boomers, right? Is they were raised, you know, in the post-war era, they were raised to be super patriotic. And then they end up going and fighting this war for what? 
Um, and so it was this rift between, you know, their, their, their parents' generation that had this just cause, right, that the whole nation mobilized to go for, um, and, and this, this other thing that it wasn't the same. And so it caused this rift in a lot of ways. Um, and it really challenged um, the conception of, of what it meant to be a man in a lot of ways. And you see this rise of what he calls new warrior culture, which is um, basically, you know, this, this soldier goes off to war, you know, and trusts the government to, that, that his family will be taken care of. And he comes home to find, you know, that, that his family has been killed either through government incompetence or government betrayal. And then he becomes, you know, this one man killing machine out for vengeance, right? So the killing no longer, you know, sanctifies the nation. It no longer, you know, gives rebirth to the nation. You know, the Gettysburg Address is really that, that right. pre, pre, uh, you know, preeminent sacrifice story, right? That these, how, the, these honored dead have given their last full measure of devotion that this nation of the people by the people shall not perish from the earth, right? Um, the sacrifice in Vietnam did not do anything to restore the nation. It did not repair the nation. So it was really this profane sacrifice. And now this hero comes back and he becomes this anti-hero where he's just killing for killing's sake, right? right. Um, and he lays out this cultural you know, analysis of it. And I, I think that the legacy of that, that cultural form really is shaping what we're dealing with today. I was talking to one um, senior leader and, and she was like, well, Vietnam is ancient history. I was like, no, it's not. Our generation grew up on these movies. Our generation grew up on this this content. Um, you know, this was our parents' generation. You know, the, our parents' conflict. So it's absolutely not ancient history from a cultural perspective. Yeah, I think it's, it's like the more you lay that out, like uh, if you all of a sudden like the U.S. government is now no longer the good guy, then you it really does kind of frame like the people that are still super patriotic. They kind of carry that tradition on, and then the other people that are like, like whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, and then you have like kind of a a left right sort of dynamic there that our society has to has to deal with. So that makes um, a lot of sense. Um, returning back to kind of like uh, information warfare, uh, tell me about Mindfuck because I haven't read it yet, and I'm really interesting. Oh yeah. So essentially Chris Wiley was, um, you know, he was, he's, he's a whistleblower, right? So he reported out what happened, but essentially what they did was Cambridge Analytica went around and bought up as much data as they possibly could. Your magazine subscriptions, your voting record, your, where you shop, where you buy, what you eat, where you go to church, where your kids go to school, like as much data as they could. And they married it all together. They bought Experian data, all the big data brokers, whatever they could buy, whatever they could get, they, they hoovered up and dumped into a database. And then they did, um, they paid people through um, Amazon Mechanical Turk to install an app on Facebook, right? Because you can install apps on Facebook. And that app for basically a dollar an install got them all of their information off of Facebook and all of their friends information off of Facebook. So they got several million profiles off of Facebook for dirt cheap. And so they take all of this consumer data and then they take all of this data that we feed into Facebook and that Facebook collects because of all the, the pixel traffic that's out there, merged it all together and started trying to figure out people's psychological profiles and how they could target messaging um, in, in different districts and see if they could swing elections, right? Um, and if you look at what they did, right, they, did, they tested this out in a couple of different places first, right? There were test runs before they, they ran it here. Um, Trinidad and Tobago was, was one of them. Um, Brexit was another test run. Um, and then you've got the 2016 election, right? And then I, I always get very frustrated when people say, oh, Clinton won by 3 million votes. That is completely irrelevant. Trump won by 77,000 votes in three states, right? And if you look at what Cambridge Analytica says they could have done, right? They needed to just shift the scales just a little bit in certain districts, right? And Channel 4 News in the UK um, has done some reporting to show that they were using messaging to try to convince people to stay home. 
Um, and that's not okay in terms of legality. You're allowed to, you know, get get out the vote, but you're not allowed to discourage people from voting. But regardless, that hasn't been picked up by any law enforcement, so it's just reporting. Um, but at the end of the day, right, they were able to 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 get people to get out the vote just enough in in you know three states to swing the election, right? The margins are incredibly small, and that's doable, right? Is it illegal? I, I mean, I don't think it is, right? But the fact that you can target that narrowly, right? What else can you target there? Can you right. target people that are, and this is something that Frances Haugen said in her testimony that is incredibly, incredibly disturbing. Um, she said the, the problem of, of, of you know, conspiracy theories, for example, is not evenly distributed. If you and I log into Facebook, um, you know, we're going to encounter normal Facebook, right? But if we are in, you know, conspiracy, if we are someone that is overexposed to conspiracy theories, as an example, you are radically more overexposed at the 95th percentile than you are at the 90th percentile, right? Like it is orders of magnitude more. It's kind of like wealth inequality, right? The top 10% have more, you know, way more wealth than the top, you know, 25%, but the top, you know, 0.01% have just orders of magnitude more wealth than the rest of us, right? Um, so it's really this exponential problem set. So there's a few, you know, there's a small subset of people that are just inundated with mis and disinformation and conspiracy theories constantly, right? All, the rest of us don't, don't see that version of Facebook. So what does that do to people if you're dealing with, you know, mental health crisis or what have you? Like, how is what you're consuming making it just, you know, exacerbating the problem set? Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's all super interesting. Um, have you, are you familiar with uh, Seth Godin at all? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I know he talks about like uh, in marketing, you have like you have demographics and then you have psychographics, like like a map of the way that people think. Uh, I feel like they they kind of like before that was a, a seemed like a term that they kind of exploited that and they exploited it effectively, at least what it seems like to me. Yeah, I mean, Brittany Kaiser, um, she's another whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica, has posted you know different ads and they showed how they ran different targeted ads at like neurotic people versus, um, you know, people that were more conscientious and wanted to get along more, right? They were just, they were able to target. Now, do we know what they did if it worked? We have no idea, right? It could be that they were just, you know, slinging spaghetti at the wall and they could do it enough at scale that, that they were able to find stuff that worked, right? At the end of the day, we don't know. And I don't think we should dismiss the possibility that being able to target people with precision now at scale um, I, I don't think we should dismiss that 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 capability set um, because that gets very dangerous very quickly. Right. So, what's the army's role in this? Like, how, like so we we're not like a regulatory body or whatever. So, like in your study and studying this whole thing from a strategic per, per, perspective, what you know, what where do we go from here? What do we do? So. I, I mean, I think because the First Amendment is so strong and so important, right? When we start talking about regulating content and regulating what people can see, we get into very dangerous territory very, very quickly, right? right? Um, you know, I'm going to violate Goodwin's law, right? But there's literally been Nazis on the internet since the internet started, right? Like one of the very first forums was Liberty Net, which was, you know, a, a neo-Nazi forum. Um, Nazis on the internet isn't the problem. The problem is the algorithms that are helping them find each other and organize and create more Nazi groups, right? And, and bring them together and coalesce them, right? So if we can go after the, 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 the data that is enabling the targeting to make the targeting less specific and less, you know, targeted, right? right. Then, then you can keep the content out there. It's the difference between, you know, I, I use this analogy, analogies in this space are always horrible because they don't really get at the scale and scope of the problem. But it's the difference between like walking into a buffet and like picking things up and putting it on your table, on your tray, and then eating it, right? And then when you're full, you push the tray away and you walk away. 
the algorithms are basically you've picked up a tray and now they're going to force feed you that for the rest of your life because that's all they know how to do is just feed you things that they think are similar to it. So you're hooked up to a feeding tube and you can't walk away from it ever, right? There's no opt out of it. Um, and, and that's really the, the, the difference here. So if we can get that kind of the, the army's role in this, right, where we're coming at, this is a defensive perspective. How do we protect the force to make sure that we are able to make rational decisions when we need to be able to make them? And we're not all spun up on anger and, and, and hooked on the outrage machine. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is, is demonstrate that all of this data collection is incredibly dangerous from a force protection mechanism. And then, you know, try to move the, the needle on developing tools to protect people from the collection, which then enables the targeting. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, uh, I've been reading some papers on like uh, how NATO has addressed like cognitive warfare. Um, and it seems like that, like the information that we, we take in basically shapes the way that we perceive reality and, and shapes our, our biases. Um, how, and I know this is kind of like Colonel DeGroof wanted to talk about this, like how can, uh, I guess like first off, like can you like kind of just flesh out cognitive warfare for everybody who, who, who may not know? And then two, like how does that uh, impact the individual soldier and how, how do they protect themselves from being, you know, uh, corrupted by like bad data? Did you freeze? Oh, no. Is that for me? Or for That's for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought that was. Sorry. I thought I asked. Um, well, I mean, the, the data environment in, in the EU is very different, right? Like all of the data collection is not, it's simply not the same over there. So, um, you know, and, you know, if you look at Estonia, which is really on the front lines of Russian information warfare tactics, they took very, very strong, you know, tactics and, 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 and at the, at the national level to, to, to push back on this. This is also not only a technology problem, right? Like the Russians were able to mobilize, right? A, a, an ethnic Russian population inside of Estonia. The, the Estonians were like, okay, you guys are still part of Estonia. You're part of our family and we're gonna figure out how to make things better here, right? They reached out and tried to actually start solving some of the grievances that the Russians were trying to mobilize. Right. right? So this is, this is also not only a social media problem, right? These things are riding off of real problems that need to get solved. Solving the internet problem is only going to solve a small piece of the actual underlying issues that are going on. I think that's a really good point because, uh, so like I, I managed several battalions worth of uh, social media stuff, and I th found it very, very interesting that the uh, underlying culture of that battalion will come out in, in their social media feeds. Like, because I, I, I can only, I'm only as good as, uh, as the, the photos and pictures that, that get sent to me, and you can tell a difference between one battalion and the next battalion, both in, like, the quality, like the kind of the hunger they, they, they have to, like, you know, uh, put their culture forth as a recruiting tool, but also as a um as what they actually value and so like i can see like you know one battalion values like creativity and the other battalion va values like being very very conservative and very kind of like let's color inside the lines and another one is like we're, we're all about diversity we have all these you know crazy demographics inside of our uh our, our pictures and stuff so it makes a lot of sense that like in order to to solve the social media problem it's not actually a social media problem it's actually just a society problem that social media is just like bring putting a spotlight on yeah so, yeah um all right so uh so kind of back to books uh like um you you read a lot you're a researcher so like your job like full-time aside i guess teaching is to uh to actually research and and read now when i was in high school a um a, a mentor of mine gave me a book by mortimer atler called how to read a book 
And uh, it, it's one of those like rudder books that it really kind of changed my life because like all of a sudden it was like, I was like, this is a joke. Like this book is huge and it's about how to read a book. And like, and so, so I started going through there and I started realizing that like this guy has like a systematic way to read different, you know, uh, things. I guess you have it on your shelf over there. No. Oh, you're, you're muted. I was, I was just going to say like, this is my systematic way to read a book, right? I read with stickies and underlines. So yeah. So that, that's I, what I that's what I want to like, uh, like get after. So like you read stickies and, and I've noticed that everybody has different, uh, different kind of like, you know, methodologies. So like, what's yours? Read stickies and underline. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a very, I'm a very active reader. Um, and when I'm reading for, for writing, um, you know, working on an academic paper, I've got even bigger stickies and I started like just start writing down my thoughts and then those start to become sort of notes that I can extract out and, and start, you know, kind of framing the argument that I'm trying to make. Yeah, so so okay. As you're writing on those sticky notes, how do you like how do you aggregate them into like you know something that's like usable later on? Like what does that? Oh, look? they 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 stay where they are, and then I just kind of copy them over. Oh, oh, okay. So you just kind of put back through the book. And you're you're in that way. Yeah. Have you ever looked at? Do you know who? Um, I forget his first name. His last name is New uh, Lumen. He's a he was a sociologist uh, that like uh, had the uh, the guy system, the slip card system. You've never heard of that? Oh wow. Okay. So yeah, you're you're prepared to nerd out on something new. All right, so uh, like uh, Nicholas Lumen, that was his name. Uh, he was a, a self-taught um, uh, German sociologist that his wife died. He had five kids, but he still managed to publish more than like any other researcher in that era. And like it's something like the order of like 60 books, or some ridiculous amount of work. And uh, the way when it, they, there's like courses that you can go take in Germany on like how he did this and they still don't fully understand how he went about it. But essentially what he did is what you did is that he, he, he would go through and he would write or he would read and he would write and, and make notes. And then he had this like very, it's not over, it's like when you read about it, it's not really that complicated, but apparently using it becomes very, very complicated uh, that he would take uh, like biographical data about the book. Like I read this book, here are the key takeaways. And then he'd have ideas that he would, he would somehow use a numbering system to uh, link those ideas to those books. And so then whenever he wanted to write something, he would just go pull from his own repository. He basically had all the ideas there and then he just had to flesh them out, submit, and that's the end of it. Um, and so now, like, are you familiar with like Rome Research? Have you ever seen that? Oh yeah, look at that. Like that's a, it's, that's a digital version of that. I've been playing around with it. I, I kind of uh, like thought that maybe you had like some kind of wizard uh, uh, way of doing things, but you just kind of do it like the old school way. It's pretty cool. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that so uh, Carl do you have any any questions wow um so it, it's funny because every once in a while you'd hit a topic and I'd go oh yeah let's go there <laughs> and then we yeah, go I have like a page of notes so. um, but yeah I was talking a little bit um there are a couple things like what should we be doing as an army that that question came up right and we definitely talked to the larger um from the national level how how our uh, communities actually teach at, at the strategic levels. Um, I, I see those activities happening. What I don't see is how it translates down to you and your battalion. So like you as a case study is very interesting to me because we don't typically see that level of engagement. Um, the army's very good at, hey, we've got a problem set. And we're going to go after it with the tools that we know. One of the tools that I really see is lacking is how we are engaging on social media, how we are engaging in the information environment, and how we're actually building that identity. So when you talk about what's the identity, I think we're a little bit fortunate in the National Guard, right? Because we can rally around, hey, we're community-based, and you can go to the wildland firefighting, and you can go to the domestic operations support. 
Um, but then you try to push that out on an exponential scale, right? Okay, now at the next echelon, uh, as we're talking about going into large scale operations, have we prepared our people to really look at if you're if you're going to go into large scale operations, how are you building the narrative at the division level, and how is that feeding up? And I think we're behind there. Uh, we're still really trying to experiment and go, hey, we've got some smart people who know the concepts, but how do we drill that down? And then how do we drill that through um, to be able to be successful on that front, right? There's the, always the running joke that goes out there about sprinkle IO on it, right? Hey, you just grab somebody from there and sprinkle some IO on that. And you did. I mean, we saw it where we've been su supporting the um, Sojidif OIR over in the Levant area for years now. And the interesting thing is each of our teams go forward. We can see the ones that support and use information to our advantage and, and actively engage. And we see the ones that say, no, 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 you, you can do MWR and you can do this, but we're not as interested. Um, so it's, it, it is a holistic just problem set of, of how we get that built down just from the ground up. Um, because we know it, like doctrinally, you can find that every soldier is a sensor. Every soldier has a voice and a story that we compile and we can build up. Um, but we're we just haven't been able to actually leverage it. Um, we're we're slow to it. It's it's not well understood, and then we do a poor job of of framing the value of it. So I, I think it's. It's very critical, especially as we're moving against some, you know, adversaries who really don't have any backstop of, of morality or values that say, you're not going to do this. Um, you've got Russia, who is the great instigator, who's constantly throwing out turmoil. And then you've got China, who's the great suppressor. Um, and then you've got the U.S. that we're, we're so conservative in our voice that frequently we let people beat us to a narrative build. And I think if we were able to actually, you know, you see this when we work with our 5 Eye partners and some of the collaboration, like when we leverage our partnerships and speak from a joint voice, man, that becomes strong. That's, that's why you see some of those great initiatives coming out of the EU and NATO. And when we speak jointly with Australia, it becomes not that we don't have to fight the narrative that the U.S. is just trying to do what the U.S. wants, right? They're, they're trying to be the world police. They're trying to do that, which um, the doctor said earlier isn't really our role, right? We shouldn't be the, the factor that polices China, but it should be an approach of, you know, we as, as humanity should be putting out the best information for people to make educated decisions. So it's, it's a fantastic problem set. My hope is that we can get injected as we're starting to reframe and we're behind, right? But as we're starting to reframe what we need to be doing to compete, um, that we really pull up in the information warfare and information environments so that we're, we're doing the things and filling the spaces with truly getting people able to digest information that's important to them. And, and that's hard. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at all of these things. How do you build your national identity? How do we get there? There's, there's small roads there. And then the other problem is, you know, how are you countering the messages that are tearing you apart as a nation? Um, I think the importance is, is that we, we really do need to build into just even at the basic levels of our curriculum, every soldier should really understand how they're getting information, digesting it, and then pushing it out. Um, 
One little fun thing that I like to do with my soldiers that from an MI perspective, right? Critical thinking, highly important. Um, but one of the things that we share with them, and I think one of the most engaging classes I get from the level and it ends up trickling up and it builds people as, as better officers and leaders is where are you getting your information and how can you demonstrate to me that it's valid? This came across a lot during COVID, right? Here's, here's an interesting fact is we had a lot of people that we were able to save, right? In the whole, you know, I've got a lot of, of concern. I'm not certain about the shot. I'm not certain that this is right for me. Um, and the ability to talk through, have empathy and challenge where you're getting your information helped immensely. And that on a scale is something that we need to, to build into our folks as we see these divisive themes and messaging coming out is that, you know, be able to articulate, defend, and even to the point, right, you go out and you look and see what the, the other side is, is saying so that you can at least understand where they're getting it. Um, the interesting part when you were talking about the order magnitude with conspiracy, right? So I had two interesting populations. On one side, my National Guard job, I'm an MI battalion commander, and now I'm in the information operations group. And then on the other side, I actually uh, work for the Department of Energy. And I'm a, I was a chief of a, a protective force, right? Security police officers, a battalion of fit guys that I realized really quick, right? We trained them so well on the tactical mission. And then when I had to engage them about what this thing was coming down the pipe, they weren't having it. Like I, I, I had to do my best to say, okay, you've always trusted me as an honest broker and I'm not shooting, I'm not leading you down the wrong trail. I need you to do some research. And some of the things that they were throwing at me, right? Um, we're in Eastern Washington. <laughs> and I, I love the difference because it is, you know, you're not supposed to start partisan, but Western Washington and Eastern Washington, different animals. Um, so there's things that you can discuss on one side of the state that you better not bring over to the other. Um, just the, the challenge to try to get them to open up their aperture to say, hey, instead of following this singular news source that you keep getting fed in your social media feed, why don't you branch out? And I'm not even telling you to branch out to, you know, I'm go to CNN. I'm saying go to BBC, go to Reuters. <laughs> Just look at a different source for a little bit and, and compare and come back to me about what you're seeing on both sides. There you go. Oh, sorry. I, I'm not supposed to talk no, about no. the show. <laughs> No, I'll let you respond. Yeah. But I mean, I think you bring up a really, 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 really super important point, right? And and I love your your example of 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 COVID, right? Because one of the things that the CDC did that I think was a fundamental misstep was say, talk to your family doctor. And they failed to recognize that the vast majority of Americans do not have a family doctor that they can talk to. So where point. were people getting their information from, right? I mean, that's really like you highlighted the heart of, of our problem right now. We all were looking for information during COVID and how many of us, like I was very lucky. One of my classmates is married to a doctor, right? And I was like, hey, um, like help me sort through this, right? And even then, right? Like, like I tried not to take advantage to because he was super busy, right? Like, but this, this, this highlights the fundamental problem, right? Talk to your doctor. Most of us don't have a doctor to talk to, right? And, and so then what, right? Then we're, we're all just doing the best we can, right? And, and you know, the media environment was a mess. Um, and it's still a mess in a lot of ways, right? Like one of the things that's super frustrating about the media environment is they do critical thinking, but when like 
everybody on the left is lined up this way and everybody on the right is lined up this way. Like, where do you go to actually like sort through the BS to find like, okay, give me a different perspective. Help, what am I not seeing here? Right. And that's really hard to do. And it's it like it, it, it's to the point where folks just kind of opt out and just go with whatever. Um, the biggest thing I think I would I would to build on what you said, ma'am, is we got to get people off the outrage pipeline. Right. Like John Scott. I think it was John Scott Rowland. That's who I'm giving credit to in, in my paper that's coming out coined this term outrage farming. Right. Of like you're going to get pushed these things that are going to just feed your outrage and you're going to be you know just so angry about things right and we know that like facebook to, to keep beating up that you know that that dying horse is you know they changed their algorithm to five points for outrage right they weighted their algorithm if you clicked on the angry emoji that made that that content travel further and faster but if you're hooked up to anger all the time you're not rationally thinking right so we've all got to be able to like you can get the news wherever you get the news but when you see something that's just triggering your outrage you gotta take a step back and and real like rein it in hard because the minute you're outraged you're not thinking clearly anymore and you're not making rational decisions and someone else is going to be able to push you where they want you to go and that i think is if we could all just slow down take a breath and and keep and, you know try to figure out things because i think covid's a great example of just a hot mess of an information environment right it was a disaster across the board in terms of the information space it really was um and it still is. Uh, right. Still still a divisive uh, topic. I really hate that the Jankowitz uh, uh, interview really didn't work out because she's really big on uh, uh, information hygiene or digital hygiene and making sure that like you get your, uh, your information from, from a good source and kind of talking about that. Um, kind of pivoting a, a little bit, but uh, you're a professor. So you see, uh, you know, all these different cadets that, that come through. And uh, I'm sure you see some like really, really, you know, super studs. And then you see some really dud, the big duds too. What, like in, from that perspective, what makes like really good students versus like really poor ones? Like what, what are the best practices there that we can kind of pass on to our soldiers? Be wealthy. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that that's actually like, um, you know, there's a really great New York Times article. It's a little bit dated, but it's based on the economist Raj Chetty's work. And he show, they, they show all of the school districts in this country, right? And the best school districts in this country, you know, like Lexington, Massachusetts, and others that are up there are three and a half to four years ahead of the national average. So these kids are graduating, having been exposed to content that is, you know, college level content and beyond, right? And then you've got, you know, your, your average schools where if you graduate at a 12th grade level, you're graduating at a 12th grade level, right? And then you've got the schools that are up to eight, you know, up to four years behind, right? This is not a question of capability. I get really frustrated when we talk about, you know, students that, that are struggling, right? Because all learning builds on prior learning. Like you can teach kids, right? If you show them that they that you care about them and that they can do this and you just got to figure out how to make the content stick um that's that's really what you're dealing with and one of the things that i love about about where i get to teach is we have students from across all of those those spectrums right we bring in students from some of the the poorest school districts in the country right and we get them to graduate right we, they're not going to necessarily go on to be a road scholar but they might right but like we get them to graduate we're we're overcoming some massive structural gaps um, and this institution doesn't give itself enough credit for what it does there in terms of if taking kids, you know, talented kids from around the country and helping them, them succeed. So, I mean, this, this question of, of good students, it's functionally, it is fundamentally a question of wealth and parental education. That is the driver. 
Um, and and so if we really want to want to you know to to help students be better students, it's it's a structural problem. We've got to get more stability in the home. We've got to get more teacher better pay. We've got to get more you know fix the poverty problem, the hunger problem. Right? It is a structural problem across the board. Um, that's really very, very not not as much driven by individual grit as 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 folks like to to make it seem. I get really passionate about that. I'm no, sorry. it's great. It's great. <laughs> I, like uh, like I, I'll say this. Like uh, uh, you're the most energetic guest I've ever had, and like I'm I'm trying to like I'm basically getting drug along by you. So bear sorry. with me as, as I try to keep up. You know, but no, it's it's a great deal. And so like you're saying, West Point does a really good job of, of taking care of that structural gap. Like how do they do it? Because we have soldiers that are we. Have, I've had soldiers that like uh, there were uh, that one uh, one Hispanic guy. He left a super affluent family in Mexico to come join the uh, the, the army. It was uh, I was at Fort Drum at the time, and uh, so he's like super 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 like wealthy, really like you know articulate, really like you know kind of well done. And then I've had other guys that are just like not you know like the exact opposite of that so what's the secret like how do you fix it that's that is the secret that's the beauty (laughs) of being in the army right is you get people from all walks of life and you got to figure out how to take everybody from 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 wherever they're from and make them into a functioning team right like that's the beauty of what we get to do i love it um but in terms of structural things right like a couple of things that i think that, that west point does really really well when it comes to education um, we have um, we have uh, prep classes, right? So we have students that might not necessarily be where they, they need to be. They can go to the prep school and get some foundational skills. Um, we students can can retake classes, right? If they if they don't do well and they fail a class, we will usually give them a second chance to take it because again, all learning builds on prior learning, right? Like if if you have taken, you know calculus and physics and all of that in high school when you get here and you're taking you know physics 101 or 201 or whatever it is that you're taking right you've seen it before if this is your first time seeing it it's it's gonna look like a hot mess right um we also you know students don't have to worry about going hungry right they get paid a stipend right they have their uniforms like all of those structural things not all right but like there's some of those structural things that really do sort of do a lot to level the playing field in a lot of ways and by that i mean we 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 put a floor in right um right cuz students that come in that are really well prepared are going to go on to do great things right um because they all have to take you know similar classes right there's some students that can that can um uh, what's, uh, there's a word for it, I'm missing it, right? But like everyone has to take the same courses. Um, you don't get to clep out of things per se. You can validate some stuff, but then you still have to take a similar class. Um, yeah. So it's not that we're we're holding down like the top achievers, but we are really doing a lot to bring, you know, folks that come from lower performing school districts, um, you know, bring them up to par in a lot of ways. Um, there's lots of students that work really hard as peers, uh, peer tutors, right? Students really go out of their way to help each other out. Um, but a lot of those structural issues, right? And then, you know, we are really, one of the things that's great about being on this faculty is the faculty are very accessible. Like it is a requirement that you don't have office hours. You are available when your students need you, right? Um, the thing is, is you have to teach, like this is a working class, like there's a very big difference between like working class kids and middle class kids, right? Middle class kids know to walk in and, you know, talk to the teacher about their grade and ask for help. And they think that, that you know, the system works for them, right? That's the the, the hidden curriculum that, that, that they talk about in terms of what do schools teach you, right? Working class kids don't necessarily know to go in and ask for help. They don't necessarily know how to go in and, and, and say like, this is where I'm lost, right? And I mean, I experienced that in grad school. I went to the stats TA and I was like, I am completely lost. He's like, well, well what, what, where do you need help on? I was like, I don't even know what questions to ask right now. 
And I viscerally remember that feeling. And so I very much try to watch for that in my students of like, if you're like, if they really come in and they, they don't even know where to start, I'm like, all right, take a breath. We're going to figure this out because I remember feeling like that um, and not knowing what questions to ask. And like, that's part of, of teaching and helping kids get, you know, get acculturated. So um, I think the institution does a, does a, does a, does a pretty solid job of, of getting kids up to, up to college level um, and helping them get through, especially ones that come from school districts that, that have left them less prepared. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, what, like, what have I not asked you about that I should be asking you about that I'm just not smart enough to figure out? I don't know, ma'am, you got anything? <laughs> um, I could talk about this crap all day, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really, I was, you, you talked a little bit about how we're building resilience and in, in making sure on a national scale um, that we really should be orienting to make sure that we're protecting our, our troops and the DOD on information gathering, right? Why give all of that free information out? Um, so, so you hit a little bit about that. Um, yeah, that, that was, I was just looking at any other suggestions you have, right? For soldiers who are trying to get informed and trying to protect themselves and, and any message that you've seen from your scale of, of what you could share on, on good practices to improve your, your foxhole there. So um, there's a couple of things that, that so here, first caveat, these are like things that, that I have done. We have not implemented this at a policy level. So this is all personal stuff. Um, and the, the second caveat is I don't have any idea if it actually works, right? It makes me feel better. So like, I guess that goes a long way, right? Um, so the biggest thing is your phone number and your email address, your primary email addresses. Don't give those out if you don't have to, right? Like I've started putting in on, you know, if I'm ordering, you know, something from, from an online store, it, they don't need my phone number, right? So I put like 555, right? And something, right? Um, so I just put in a bad number, right? Because they don't need my number. Unless there's a valid reason that somebody needs my phone number, they're not getting it anymore. Um, same thing with your email address. You should have a an email address for like medical stuff and like your kids' schools and stuff like that that's separate from things that you use for like social media and then have a separate one again for like online shopping, right? Like try to segment those out as best you can. Because if you have one email address that's for your shopping, for your social media, for, you know, your bank account, if you get hacked, that's game over, right? Um, check to see if your stuff has been on Have I Been Pawned, right? Like you, there's that website, it, it searches all the data leaks out there. Good password hygiene is, is absolutely important, right? Like do not use the same password on every website. Um, you know, two-factor authentication is a basics. Um, I use a program called disconnect.me. So I pay for it. It is a tracker blocker on, I use it on my, my laptop and then on my, on my phone and on my iPad. Um, in the two years that I've been using it, it's blocked like 60 gigs worth of trackers, right? That does mean that I can't click on any ads, right? So if you click on an ad, it breaks the link. Um, so like, if you're not willing to have that happen, then okay. Um, I'm willing for, I'm willing to assume that risk. Um, the other thing is, is if you don't absolutely really need the app on your phone, take it off your phone, right? Like I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we used to have to like call the bank and like put your pin in and do the things that you needed to do. Right. I'm not saying go back to that, but I've moved like all of my banking apps off of my phone onto my iPad. That is, you know, it's not a cellular iPad, so it's not constantly pinging, right? Um, I've taken all social media off of my phone, right? It's only on my iPad. Like I still like it, I still look at it, right? 
all of my Facebook and Instagram is on a broken iPad that never leaves the house, right? Like, so I'm not so addicted to it that I need to have it with me every day, right? And I'll check it while I'm working out, but it's a broken iPad that never leaves the house, right? Um, the algorithm did almost get me one day where it sent me some, some animal couch covers and I was like, ooh, let me see if that works, right? I was like, that, that might be a good inference, right? right? But then it didn't have the arm covers. So I was like, dang it. Um, so like if the internet can help me find some of those things, like maybe I'll, I'll be a little bit less irritated by the, the tracking, but so far no dice. Um, I, I keep getting spam email for Viagra, um, which is completely irrelevant. Um, so really try to segment your email if you can really protect your phone, um, your, your phone, your phone number, um, data broker cleanup, right? So there's a couple of different companies out there that you can pay for to start taking your information out of data brokers. So there's delete me, there's Optory, there's another one by Surfshark that I just signed up for. So I pay for all three because I'm like super paranoid and I want my stuff out of the data brokers, right? Um, you know, if you have a, a, a rewards card, put in a, a bad email address, put in a bad address, right? Just kind of flood the market with bad information. If you don't, like, don't give the government bad information. Any official stuff with like governments and that, like, do not lie to the government about that stuff. Like, that does not apply for the government. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you don't, if they don't need to have your address and stuff, like, don't, don't give it to them, right? Um, those are kind of the basics, um, tracker blockers. I use Firefox or Brave because those are both built on, you know, focusing on privacy as best they can. Um, I use uh, Privacy Badger and um, there's another one that I use to kind of block trackers and cookies online. So um, it does break some websites, um, but those are kind of the, the basics that you can do to sort of really start protecting your privacy. Oh, and do not, the biggest thing is if you're logged into Facebook on a browser, use a completely separate browser or make sure that you have a browser add-on that fences it off. Because if you're logged in, it watches anything you do across the browser anywhere, regardless of whether or not you've got it open. Um, and, and Google and Chrome are the same way. So um, I don't use Google Maps or anything like that. I, I try to use Apple. Apple is positioning itself as, as you know, more privacy focused. Right now, we kind of take them at their word. They seem to be doing, you know, slightly better job there. Um, I think they're going to get in trouble because now they're doing their own ads as well. So they'll probably get some monopoly problems down the road. But for now, um, that's kind of the, the, the big hand little map overview of it. It's a really complicated problem. And it's really not something that individuals can tackle on their own. We really need institutional help on this. Right, right. Makes sense. Well, uh, that's all I got. I'd like to thank you for coming on. It's been super, super interesting. I, 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 someday I want to meet your husband because I, I imagine he's either like a super stud or like he's super tired. <laughs> he fishes a lot. He does bass oh. fishing. So. Oh, really? <laughs> so, like, that's, I grew up uh, bass fishing a lot. So that's pretty cool. So, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been super Can, awesome. can yeah, I have an alibi? Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, absolutely. So what, and it's totally, I talk about topical switches, because I was like, oh, what, what things do I want to ask her while she's here? <laughs> right. So the second one is, I was going to ask, do you have any insight at your level, um, integration-wise, right? As I, I, I prefaced earlier about how Army information operations constantly is changing, not necessarily they're reinventing themselves, and, and not... As plugged in, I think we, we give a lot of leverage and talk to our joint partners, but are you seeing any areas where you see we really need to solidify or something that is working, right? Because we have so many, right? I give kudos to the Marine Corps because I feel like they consolidate some of their operations very well, preface it and, and get moving out. Um, 
but I, I'm wondering from your knot hole if you're seeing anything in the joint environment that's that's promising and in, in bringing a larger scale information warfare or information operations. Together. I am. I honestly, I can't speak to that. I'm not really sure what's happening in the joint world on, on in this space. To be honest, I know the okay. army's kind of doing its own thing with information advantage and setting up its own doctrine there. I think the joint world is still very much sticking with inf um, information operations. So there's going to be a gap there. Um, I'm pretty sure Joint just published information operations. There's a new JP out there on that. So that's going to be kind of the glue that everyone's going to have to play ball with. I know the Marine Corps has stood up um, a commandant for information that I think is a really good step in the right direction. You know, what all, I think they're still figuring out what all they're doing and everything. Um, the services all sort of have different information fights in a lot of ways, right? They are sort of very, very different. So I would like to see us do some more. Um, and again, I'm not sure what's happening at the joint level, um, but whatever it is, I want more of it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's. I, I was trying to figure out if you, you're seeing anything back there, you know, because a lot of the times academic places is where we start seeing growth first and, and indications, but. Academia is really behind in this space, to be honest, um, in terms of thinking about privacy and thinking about data and all of that. Um, I there. There's, there's a lot of scholars thinking about it and talking about it and, and highlighting the problem. But when I say academia, I mean like institutionally, right? There's there's no you know home use program for privacy programs. There's no, hey, use this browser versus that browser. That's what I mean when I say like institutionally, because there's a ton of academics that are, um, that are really leaning forward in the space. One of the really good books that I read, um, Mary Ebeling, um, The Afterlives of Data. I read it, it was just absolutely, very little blows my mind in this space. And this was just like the whole book was like exclamation points and like wow and it was really really good and very very daunting um when you really think about all the data you know private health data that's being collected that's not covered by HIPAA because it's not in a HIPAA platform and it's not in a HIPAA platform it's not protected like that's horrifying right. <laughs> when you think about all these apps that are out there collecting you know information about people's periods and this like that's just like addictions and all of that like that's just awful so um, yeah, I'm I'm not really sure, um, you know, institutionally who's you know leaning forward in terms of trying to protect their their people and their stuff. Like um, there's they're focused on security, but protecting the security and the privacy of their workers is not. I'm not sure who's leaning forward in that space right now, other than reporters and like the Electronic Freedom Foundation. Like reporters are really the, at the forefront of this in term because especially if they're in conflict zones. Right, or they're reporting on autocratic regimes, they are absolutely targeted and absolutely vulnerable. So I follow a lot of them to try to pay attention to what's happening with them because they really are on the front lines of protecting themselves at the tactical level. Who, who are some of the people that you follow to kind of like uh, to emulate? Um, so I I really like John Scott Ralton at out of Citizen Lab in, in Canada. Um, he, he him and Citizen Lab do some really, really great work. Um, David Carroll has been reporting on Facebook and Cambridge Analytica for a really long time. Um, he does really good work. Um, Jason Kent has done some good reporting in this space. Um, Julie Angwin just left the markup and is writing for the New York Times now. The markup just does fantastic work. Um, I really like Wired's reporting in this space. They've they've done some really phenomenal work. Um, ProPublica has done some investigations into this space as well. Um, Kate Starbird, this is not a privacy piece, but Kate Starbird's done some ju just fantastic work in the information space, and she's actually University of Washington. So, um, oh, shout out to, to University of Washington. I, I, I have total academic fangirl crush on her. She's just fantastic. Um, she just does some really, really great work in the network space there. Um, 
I'm forgetting folks that have just done some absolutely great work. Um, Andy Greenberg's work, um, he's a former reporter from Wired. I think he still writes for them. Um, his book, Sandworm, on like the dawn of cyber war and the one that just came out, um, Tracers in the Dark, about taking down the dark web is just, I, I, he just writes like a spy thriller, but they're so good um, in laying out the, the different problem spaces. Um, I'm definitely going to forget something that's like, oh yeah, of course this after we're done. So <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I'll tell you what, every time I talk to you, I end up with a reading list. I literally have like three reading lists that you've given me. Like, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not a bad thing. It's like, uh, um, I've, I've kind of, kind of getting back to like the, uh, the read, the best reading practices. I've kind of gotten to where I have like a, a research question I'm kind of going after. And then I throw books underneath it that, that kind of drive at, at that. So I had questions and you gave me a bunch of books. <laughs> so you did a lot of, you saved me a lot of work. So uh, but yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. What, what, what am I missing? So, I mean, yeah. this is a, this is a big problem and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly knocking on doors trying to build the coalition of the willing. Right. And it's going to take all of us pushing back to on, on, on all of these data collection and figuring out how to regulate it so that we protect, you know, this grand experiment called we, the people, right? Like this is an, ex like the idea that a people can self-govern is an experiment. And it is something that, you know, America has proven the impossible to quote Harriet Martineau. Um, and I, I want to protect that. And I think that all of this data collection and, and, and micro-targeting is a fundamental threat. And, and we have to take action to protect that, to, to protect us against that. Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks for being on. Thanks for uh, you, Carl uh, Group. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.